Psalm 27 says this, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, and my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, Seek my face. My heart says to you, Your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me. They breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. So I had a roommate in seminary, and uh, we weren't very close. We weren't enemies. Uh, we didn't dislike each other. We would just never kind of hit it off. Um, we didn't ever do anything outside of uh, just kind of seeing each other in the dorm. And after the first semester, he moved off campus a little ways away. I moved to a different dorm. And so we didn't really see each other at all. Um, I might kind of see him passing by in, 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 on the campus from time to time, but even then I didn't see him very often. So one day I get a call from him, and I'm like, hmm, he's calling. Let's see what he wants. He, so he, I answer the phone. He's like, hey, how you doing, Matt? And he's really, really friendly. I'm like, I'm do doing all right. And he's like, How is, how's your classes? And we start talking, and he's just super friendly. I'm like, well, maybe we're going to kind of become closer friends. And then there's kind of an awkward pause, and he says, Hey, uh, do you think you could give me a ride to the train station? Then he would call over and over again. But every time he called, it was kind of the same script. He would start off being really friendly and, and kind of asking how I was doing, and then it would be, Can you give me a ride to the train station? So after a while, it got to a point where, um, I mean, I didn't say this, but every time I saw him calling, I felt like, you know, we don't have to pretend like we're buddies. I'll, I'll give you a ride to the train station if you need it. See, he didn't really want a relationship. What he wanted was a ride to the train. And I think sometimes the American church, when we approach worship, we kind of approach it in that same way. Um, if we go to church, you know, maybe we come to church and we sing songs, maybe even put money in the offering plate. But what are we really looking for? Uh, one writer named Ryan Johnston puts it this way. He says, no longer do American worshipers ask, what did God receive from my worship? Instead, we ask ourselves, what did I get out of it? It's no longer what did God receive, it's what did I get out of it? You know, and sometimes we'll talk about, so how was church? And how do we respond to that question? Well, we're like, well, uh, the worship was awesome. I loved the songs that we sang, and it was just awesome. I felt like I was in the presence of God, and uh, the messages were just on point and really interesting and applicable to my life. Or maybe sometimes it's the opposite. Maybe it's like, well, 
the, the worship leader was really off key and I didn't know any of the songs that we sung and uh, the message, it was just so boring. I'd rather endure a root canal than, than, than listen to this message. It was just awful. And really when we kind of look at worship this way, it's basically, what does it do for me? How does it make me feel? When we come together as a church, it's about me, my preferences, my feelings, my experience. But what if we reoriented our perspective? What if we reoriented our perspective? And, and when we asked that question, and we were asked that question, how was church? We answered, it was incredible. Not because the worship was great. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. Not because the message was great. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. But it was great because I met with God. And I met with God's people. That experienced the presence of God as we came together. I think, I think the problem that sometimes we have is we want the provision of God and we want the protection of God, but we don't always want the presence of God. We want the provision of God. We want the protection of God. We, we don't always want the presence of God. We want God to provide for our needs. We want God to protect us from evil, but we don't necessarily want God's presence, or if we do, it's secondary to his pr protection and provision. When we read a passage like Psalm 27, we're drawn to the first two verses. It says, O Lord, you're my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? And we get encouraged that we can face anything with our God. We see the Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom shall I be afraid? And those are the things that we're kind of drawn to. And yes, he's our protection. Yes, he's our provision. But sometimes I think we miss his presence. See, the thing is, in our country, we have the provision of God. Uh, even the poorest among us have more than 90% than of the people in the world. Uh, a few years ago, uh, researchers from UCLA did a study of uh, 32 American households, kind of typical American households. And they kind of studied the different stuff that people had. And they kind of observed and took an inventory of what they had in each room and how they just handled their possessions. And they found some startling things. The one researcher, Gene Arnold, said this, contemporary U.S. households have more possessions per household than any society in global history. That's us. If we're the kind of the typical American household, we have more stuff than anybody in the history of humanity. More possessions. They go further and they say, uh, Anthony Grace, a colleague, says this, hyper-consumerism is evident in many spaces like garages, corners of home offices, and even sometimes in the corners of living rooms and bedrooms. They continue, we have lots of stuff. We have many ways in which we accumulate possessions in our home, but we have few processes for getting rid of them. They note that the United States has 3.1% of the world's children, but consume 40% of the world's toys. We have the provision of God. We also have the protection of God. Uh, despite, you know, kind of some threats to religious freedom, we have a remarkable and kind of unprecedented ability to come together and worship in freedom. This is something that most people in the world don't have. We have a remarkable privilege to worship together in freedom. So we have the provision of God. We have the protection of God. But I think we're missing the presence of God. There's a pastor named uh, David Livermore. And uh, he had a friend named Ashish, and Ashish was from India. Um, and Ashish came to visit David Livermore in uh, Chicago, where, where he pastored. 
And uh, they were just kind of spending some time together, and they happened to go to this pizza place, and they met a youth group that had just gotten back from a missions trip to Central America. And so David Livermore started talking to him and like, how's the trip? And, and all the kids and the youth pastor, they were just kind of overwhelmed by the needs that, that they experienced in these other countries. They were just overwhelmed at how little they had. After Ashish is talking to uh, David Livermore, and he's like, I don't understand why they think that we're so poor. And Livermore responded, and he said, well, because you are. You don't have, like, compared to these kids, you don't have anything. This kind of made Ashish a little bit angry. He said, I'm sick of sympathy from Westerners who think that we need more stuff. What does that have to do with our happiness? Please don't help import the consumerism item, idol into India. He then told about an American group that was just with him in Delhi. They were concerned about the bicycle I used to get back and forth to church, he said. They told me they'd all chipped in to get me a car. That was the last thing I wanted. I think I rained on their parade, as you say, when I told them that members in my church could use those same dollars to help start a micro-enterprise. They thought I was just being super sacrificial. So we, we go to other countries and we say, poor people, they lack provisions, they lack protection. And yet some of those people, they look at us and they say, poor Americans, they have the provision of God, they have the protection of God, but they don't have the presence of God. I think we're lacking something important. We're missing something. As I've been reading a book with some friends uh, called Something Needs to Change by David Platt. And he tells the story of a church that he went to, and kind of the whole book is kind of his diary, so to speak, of his journeys to the Himalayan mountains. And he's uh, just kind of visiting with some remote people, people groups there. And so he comes to this church, and it was unlike any church that I don't think any of us have ever been to. Um, they, he said it was about the size of a small living room, maybe a bedroom, um, and it had one light bulb right in the middle of the room, just kind of hanging from the ceiling. And he said that they packed about 50 people inside that room. Now I'm thinking of my, my own house, and uh, I have kind of a smaller size li living room, kind of the size that he was describing. And uh, when we have company over, if we fit 10 people in there, it seems really crowded. And they got 50 people in there. And, and they've got smiles on their face, they're clapping, they're singing. Uh, they're listening intently to God's word. Uh, and the thing that was remarkable was they actually traveled a long distance to get there. Some of them had traveled for hours to get there. And, and they weren't necessarily just young people. There were older people who had traveled long distances. There were young uh, babies that, that mothers had brought. And they came there to listen to God's word, to pray for one another, and to experience the presence of God. Uh, commenting on this, he says that David Platt says this, he said, it's surprisingly simple when you think about it. Not easy, but simple. The church has so little of the things you and I think about when it comes to a church in our culture. They don't have a nice building. They don't have a great band. They don't have a charismatic preacher. They don't have any programs. They just have each other, God's word in front of them, and God's spirit among them. And apparently that's enough. I wonder if that would be enough for us. I wonder if that would be enough for me. Would you and I be content with belonging to a community that is simply committed to seeking God, loving each other, and sharing the good news of God's love with the world around us, no matter what it costs us? Isn't this the essence of what the church is according to God's design?
As I read this a few weeks ago, I've just been kind of thinking about this question, would this be enough for us? Would Christ be enough for us if you took away all of the other things? And the resounding answer that comes back is that for most people, I don't think it would. I don't think it would be enough. Christ wouldn't be enough. His people would not be enough. In the passage we just looked at, the psalmist says something that uh, is kind of shocking, kind of countercultural, and maybe even considered extreme in our culture. He says, One thing I've asked of the Lord, that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Notice what David says. He says, One thing I've asked of the Lord. One thing. Not two things. Not many things, one thing. Now, of course, we know that he's asked, he's made other requests of God. It doesn't mean that this is his only prayer life here. He's made other requests to the Lord, but what he's saying is that in his heart of hearts, what he wants more than anything else is to be in the presence of God, to have a passion for God's presence and God's uh, power in his life, that he would experience his glory. Oh, if that was our desire as well. Thing is, we live in a distracted age. We don't live in in a time frame where it's easy to limit our options. Uh, Gabe Lyons cites a number of statistics about our distracted culture. He says 64% of car accidents are caused by distracted driving. The average student can focus on a given task for only two minutes. The typical internet user's online screen focus lasts for an average of 40 seconds. The average 25 to 34-year-old checks his or her her phone 50 times a day. The average 25 to uh, 34-year-old spends two and a half hours per day on social media, while the average 8 to 18-year-old child spends nine hours on social media per day. Excessive device usage is leading to decreases in marital and relational satisfaction, he says. Loneliness is an epidemic with 54% of people saying they always or sometimes feel that no one knows them well. He says, on average, we spend 650 hours per year reading and responding to emails. We touch, swipe, and tap our screens an average of 2,617 times per day. It's clear that our lives lack unity, lack purpose, lack intentionality. We don't have one purpose in life. We have many. It's no wonder that we experience dissatisfaction. It's no wonder that we experience lack of direction and fear and anxiety in in our lives. Uh, Jesus told a story in Luke chapter 10, uh, or it wasn't a story. It was something that happened in his life. Uh, He enters into the home of a woman named uh, Martha, and uh, Martha is doing what any good host would do in that culture. Uh, She's making sure her guests are well cared for, and she's just kind of running around Uh, just kind of going crazy, trying to make sure everything was taken care of. And her sister Mary is at Jesus' feet, just kind of listening to everything that Jesus says and just kind of taking in uh, everything, that, uh, taking in his presence there. Now Martha is upset, comes to Jesus, and basically is asking Jesus, could you tell my sister she needs to help me? And Jesus responds in a remarkable way in Luke 10, 41. It says, Martha, Martha, you, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Jesus says, you're anxious and you're troubled by many things. That's the state of our culture. We have many passions. 
I mean, we have many things that drive our lives. Most of us don't have one thing. But what if our relationship with Christ became our one thing? What if that relationship was kind of the driving force and passion in our life that superseded everything else? Not that we didn't do other things, not that we weren't good parents and good siblings and good friends, and not that we didn't do anything else in our life, but the one passion in our life was to know God and the power of his resurrection. What if that was our one thing? If that were the case, we'd be living life as God intended it for it to be, as the Westminster Catechism says, that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's why we were created, to know God, to experience his grace. And when we do that, there's a number of things that happen in our life. There's a number of important benefits that, that we experience in our life. Uh, the number one thing we experience is delight. The psalmist truly believes that there is incredible joy to be found in relationship with God. Elsewhere, David says this in Psalm 16:10, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Making a relationship with Christ our one thing is not a duty, it's a delight. David is not saying, oh yeah, I think I should you know, kind of spend more time with God. He's saying, I want to spend more time with God because I know when I'm in the presence of God, my heart's going to be filled with joy. As a great theologian, Dave, uh, Jonathan Edwards once said, the enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows. But enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. And so we seek to deepen our relationship with Christ for the sake of joy. David talks about gazing upon the beauty of the Lord. And the sound that we're looking at today. Think about that for a moment. If you were going to spend time, if you could say you could have coffee with anybody in the world today, who would that be? You'd probably choose someone maybe who is really smart, maybe someone who had done something incredible, maybe somebody that was incredibly beautiful, or someone that you had a really close relationship with. And we think about God, God is all of those things to us. He loves us with an undying love. He created the world with the, by the word of his mouth. He's incredibly wise, incredibly brilliant, incredibly loving. And so when we spend time with him, when we make our lives purpose, knowing and delighting and obeying him, our hearts experience joy because his glory is like no other and we'll never get to the bottom of the depths of who he is. And so that's the first result of making Jesus our one thing. The second is protection. David says again, the Lord is my light and my salvation in verses 1 and 2. He says the Lord is the stronghold of my life. And the reason that in David's mind the Lord is his protector is because the Lord is his father, because he has a relationship with him. So my son is two and a half, and uh, sometimes if he gets scared, he'll cry out and say, Daddy, Daddy. Now why does he do that? Does he do that because I'm just an incredibly strong physical specimen? No. Does he scan out and look and see who's the strongest person that I could find? Who's going to protect me? No, he calls out to me because I'm his father, because I have a relationship with him. 
In the same way, we call out to God and he protects us. He guides us because he's our father. Sigmund Freud once told a story of a three-year-old boy who was crying in a dark room of a house he was visiting. The boy cried out, Auntie, talk to me. I'm afraid because it's so dark. His aunt answered him from another room. What good would that do? You can't see me. That doesn't matter, replied the child. When you talk, it gets light. See, our protection from God is built upon a relationship with God. We're protected by him because he's our father, because he cares for us. And sometimes I think we want God to intervene in our circumstance. We want God to provide for us, but we neglect the relational aspect of that. God is not just this kind of cosmic vending machine to just kind of doles out anything that we want. He's a loving father who guides us and cares for us. Let's say after the service, a child came up to you, a child that you'd never met before. The child comes up to you and says, Mommy, Daddy, help me. And you look at the child kind of perplexed. And of course, you're going to try to help them as much as you can, try to help them find their actual mom or dad. But you're going to have to tell them eventually, I'm not your mom. I'm not your dad. And I think sometimes we come to God and we're like, I need this. I need this. I need you to intervene in this circumstance. I need you to provide for my needs. I need you to protect me. I need you to give me your peace. And God's like, I love you. I care about you. I want the best for you. But I got to be honest, I'm not your dad. You don't have a relationship with me. Unless you fix that relational aspect, nothing else is going to fall into place. And so when we make Jesus our one thing, he provides us protection and provision in the context of that relationship. The final thing Paul or David shows us is uh, that when we make Christ our one thing, it produces faith and confidence in our life. David says this in verses 13 to 14. I believe I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. He says, wait for the Lord, be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. When we make a relationship with Christ, the passion of our lives, there will be times when maybe we don't understand what's happening. In David's life, he was facing many enemies. He had trials all around him, and maybe he wondered or started to doubt, is God there for me? But his passion was for the presence of the Lord, and because he had a passion for the presence of the Lord, he had faith and confidence in God's character. He states in verse 10, For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. In all things, that relationship that he has with God chooses him to believe that God will come through for him. He had a history with God. He had that relationship. He had a history of following after God, obeying him. And he saw times in the past, even when before he was king, when God had protected him and guided him. And so he knew he had the confidence that God was going to protect him and guide him in the future. And the same thing is true for us. When we're following after God, when we make him our one thing, we can have increased faith and confidence. It's not that God changes, but we change. See, if we have kind of one foot in the world and then we're trying to follow the Lord as well, our hearts are kind of divided. And so we're trying to trust him, but we're also kind of going after our own wisdom as well. And so our hearts are divided, and so we're going to be filled with fear and anxiety. But when we make Christ our one thing, we can have confidence and faith that God is who he says he is and that God's going to come through for us. There's a story about a man by the name of Joseph Nearson. 
Uh, he was a rabbi, a uh, Hasidic leader during the early days of Russian communism. He spent a long time in jail, uh, persecuted for his faith. Uh, one day on the morning of, uh, in 1927, it was the morning, and he was praying in a Leningrad synagogue, and secret police rushed in and arrested him. They took him to the police precinct and just kind of started to try to scare him, work him over, and warned him never to engage in these religious practices again. And he refused. So then the interrogator pulled out a gun, put it in his face, and said, this little toy has made many a man change his mind. Rabbi Sneerson answered, this little toy can intimidate only that kind of man who has many gods and but one world. Because I only have one god and two worlds, I'm not impressed by this little toy. See, as believers in Christ, when we're following after Christ with all of our hearts, we have that confidence that God is who he says he is. We have that track record of seeing what God has done. And we have something that David didn't fully understand. We have the cross of Christ. We have the resurrection. We see in the cross the proof once and for all that God is for us, that God cares for us, God loves us. So we never need to question that. We see in the resurrection that God is powerful that even the forces of sin, hell, and death cannot overwhelm the love of God. And so we have that history and that track record with God. And when we make Jesus our one thing and walk with him through thick and through thin, it increases our faith and confidence in him. So there are many effects to having a relationship with Christ, making Christ your one thing. Delight, protection, confidence, faith, among other things. And yet the greatest gift is that we get Christ himself. Christ is the one who's worthy of all of our praise and devotion. He's the treasure hidden in the field that's worth selling everything for. So the question that I'd like for us to consider today, is Jesus your one thing? Is Jesus your one thing? Is Jesus the passion of your life? As a church, let's think together, is Jesus our one thing? Is he the one that when we come together, is he the one that we are there for? His name and his renown. Are we there to worship him, to lift him up, to experience his presence when we come together? Can we say the words of the English mystic Julian of Norwich, who said this, God of goodness, give me yourself, for you are sufficient for me. I cannot properly ask anything less to be worthy of you. If I were to ask less, I should always be in want. In you alone do I have all. I saw that he, our Lord, is everything that we know to be good and helpful. In his love, he clothes us, enfolds us, and embraces us. That tender love completely surrounds us, never to leave us. We're going to sing one last song, a new song today. It's called Simple Pursuit. And as we sing this last song, may this be the cry of our hearts. The lyrics go like this, God, take us back to the place we began, the simple pursuit of nothing but you, the innocence of a heart in your hands. God, take us back. Oh, God, take us back to an unswerving faith in the power of your name, a heart beating for your kingdom to reign, a church that is known for your presence again. God, take us back. Nothing and no one comes close to you. Nothing could ever come close. Nothing and no one could come close to you. Nothing could ever come close. Is Jesus 
your one thing today. May he be the passion of our lives, the passion of our homes, and the passion of our church. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your great love for us. We thank you that you gave everything so that we could experience a relationship with you. A relationship that involves joy, involves protection, involves confidence and faith. But most of all, a relationship that involves knowing you, beginning today and going on into eternity. Lord, we thank you for your love and grace for us. Help us to put aside anything else that's distracting us from the one purpose of knowing and loving you in everything that we do. In Christ's name I pray, amen.